Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That. Episode 4, Good Governor, Bad Governor. By the autumn of 1834, the forces of reform seemed on the cusp of victory. In elections for the Assembly in both Upper Canada and Lower Canada, reformers won great victories. In Upper Canada, electors voted in a majority of reform candidates to sit in the Assembly, possibly out of disgust at the family compact's mistreatment of William Lyon Mackenzie that we discussed last week. In Lower Canada, the Patriot victory was even more overwhelming. In the aftermath of the Street of Blood killings, the support for the Patriot, especially its most strident wing, grew to the point where there almost wasn't any opposition. In both colonies, reformers pushed the entrenched loyalists and supporters of the government back on their heels. The time was ripe for change. Yet, within two years, the hopes of 1834 would be dashed. In Upper Canada, the appointment of a new governor was about to completely transform how politics worked in the colony and bring loyalists back into power. And in Lower Canada, a conciliatory new governor would do everything he could but stopped short of adopting the major changes wanted by the Patriot. What could they do? By the early months of 1837, some reformers in both Upper and Lower Canada began to think that they were not going to get the change they wanted. Not, that is, by lawful means. In the first few episodes, we covered the backstory of political debates in the Canadas. We had a lot of work to do, explaining how government worked and the reasons why some Upper and Lower Canadians were absolutely certain that they suffered under a vicious government, while others were, well, less convinced. That was the tough bit. Now we get to sit back and enjoy ourselves. With the backstory set, it's time to let time and action propel us forward. In the summer of 1835, Archibald Aitchison arrived in Lower Canada determined to make friends. Better known to history as Lord Gosford, he set sail for Quebec City that summer after being appointed Governor-in-Chief of British North America. The Brits felt that things were not as they should be across the seas, and Archie was the man to sort it out, or so they hoped. Lord Gosford seemed perfect for the job, he was an Irish Protestant, but one who was friendly to Catholics. Although he had fought against Irish independence back in 1798, he also voted for Catholic emancipation in that country. He was a strident critic of the Orange Order, that fraternal paramilitary organization that was the bane of progressives in Ireland. And indeed, he blamed the Orange Order for much of the bad feeling in Ireland. Gosford was, moreover, a believer in a generous policy of sharing authority between the minority Protestants in Ireland and the larger Catholic majority. What better figure to come to Lower Canada and sort out the same kinds of conflicts here between English and French, Catholic and Protestant. The Patriot Party that dominated the Assembly in Lower Canada had stepped up the pressure on Britain. After the Street of Blood shootings back in 1832, the more assertive radicals had taken the lead among the Patriot. In 1834, 
Papineau ushered through the assembly a series of assertive resolutions to press for radical reform to the constitution, imaginatively called, wait for it, the 92 resolutions. Can you guess how many there were? Yes, yes you can. Written in a now slightly archaic language that hasn't aged well, the 92 resolutions were nonetheless a brilliantly constructed argument for reform. Well, the first 50 or so were brilliant. Honestly, from the 50s onwards, they start to go off into random specifics, which makes you think they were sitting in a room saying, oh, and another thing, and oh, one more thing. But the first 50 or so resolutions made a cogent argument for reform. They also read to me, and maybe this is just me, like a kind of mid-19th century, passive-aggressive, almost breakup letter. This is the one where a girl says to her annoying boyfriend, like, listen, I don't want to break up with you, really, I like you, but come on. Do you see what you're doing to me? You're giving me no choice here. The resolutions start off full of professions of loyalty and an appreciation for all things British. Remember, she's not breaking up with them yet. They say the equivalent of, look how loyal we've been. We fought for you back in 1812 against those dastardly Americans. We've stuck around ever since. We accepted all those immigrants you sent us. You know, the ones we really, really didn't want. In other words, we've been a really good girlfriend. I mean, Colony. But then, in the next several resolutions, they turn it around. Look, they say, we did all this even though you were treating us like crap. And by treating us like crap, they mean even though you saddled us with this terrible form of government. And by terrible form of government, you guessed it, they mean this damned appointive legislative council. Then, the resolutions turn to the old, even your friends agree with us, routine. Remember that special parliamentary committee back in 1828? Of course you do. They were your friends. And guess what? They agreed with us that the system of government was unfair. Why haven't you done anything to fix it? Now, I don't think I can keep up the girlfriend parody much longer and probably you don't want me to either. But by now you should get the gist. The 92 resolutions expressed a kind of loyalty, but it was strained. And there is no doubt where this was going to end up if the British did not get their act together and change. That's right, Splitsville. It was at this point in the list of resolutions that the preamble led to the main problem, the Legislative Council. The Patriot argued that this kind of institution with its aristocratic basis had no place in North America. The whole ethos of the new world was democratic and this, you get it because you're born to it, institution was just bound to fail here. The council was, according to the Patriot, made up of psychophants who were getting fat off the teat of the state. How could this body be permitted to modify or disallow bills passed by the much more legitimate legislative assembly. The resolutions went on to argue that there were generally two sets of political groupings or parties in the world. One represented crusty privilege. Those were the bad guys, like the people sitting on the legislative council. And then there were the good guys, like the patriot, of course, but also like the Whigs in England. And as it happened, the Whigs were the party now in power in England. That's who the 92 resolutions were addressed to. You're Whigs, the Patriot wrote, and we, in our own way, are Whigs too. We are on the same side. But 
Not trusting that this I'm really on your side rhetoric would hold up, the resolutions quickly switch to threatening mode. They start to talk about the lower Canadians' great neighbors, the Americans. You know, that country that was kind of like the young, handsome, alternative boyfriend waiting close by to swoop in and become the new boyfriend, the one that Brits had already fought and were constantly jealous about. Just look at the Americans, wrote the Patriot. They're loyal to their institutions because those institutions are democratic and popularly based. The Americans don't have anything like this legislative council. Now, yes, we're asking for more independence, just like the kind of systems that exist in the United States. But we'll be loyal. We promise. Really, we are threatening you. But did we mention just how good those American democratic institutions look from where we are? You know, very close to the United States. There was more, of course. The Assembly listed a series of more precise complaints about specific bills that they wanted repealed, asking that this British-American land company be dealt with. But more than half of the 92 resolutions, and the first clearly argued half, all made a multi-pronged case for why the British should give Lower Canada an elected legislative council. It wasn't entirely clear what would happen if they didn't but there were enough references to the wonderful American system of government thrown in that the hint was clear. Do this, or you just never know what might happen. And that is why one governor was sent packing, and another governor, Lord Gosford, arrived in the colony in the summer of 1835. Gosford was the relationship counselor, sent to smooth things over and mollify the upset colony. Gosford came to Lower Canada not just as a governor, but also as head of a commission of inquiry looking into the complaints of the Lower Canadian Assembly in the 92 resolutions. And when he arrived, he got right to work trying to woo support. He kept his distance from the stalwarts in the English party and instead hosted a series of balls and dinner parties for leading patriot. He whined and dined the remaining Patriot moderates and their wives late into the night, and he did the same in political affairs. The Patriot had complained about their inability to pass laws, but Gosford dealt with this and reserved only one of the 59 bills passed by the Assembly. He tried to rein in the wilder elements of the English party. By late 1836, and in the midst of the Patriot's agitation and Gosford's concessions, some in the British community began to think that they were genuinely under threat. And if Gosford wasn't going to take action, they would. They proposed forming a civilian paramilitary organization, the British Rifle Corps, to match a similar volunteer corps headed by one of Papineau's supporters. But Gosford squashed the project almost before it began, refusing official approval of its formation. He was going all in on conciliation. When the Assembly met in October of 1836, Papineau pushed to have the Assembly disband until the British government had conceded to all of the demands in the 92 resolutions. But Gosford's good works had begun to pay off, and enough moderates were willing to give Gosford a chance and refused to give Papineau what he wanted. It all might have worked if it hadn't been for another governor in British North America, also supposedly appointed to mollify reformers and make things right. But in this case, the governor was a singularly different kind of man. He would end up surprising everyone. So 
before we can get to know how things went wrong for Gosford in Lower Canada, we'll have to catch up on what was happening upriver. Last day, we left off with the expulsion crisis of William Lyon Mackenzie and his tussle with the family compact. The back-and-forth conflict became a reform cause célèbre and was one of the reasons why, when elections were held in 1834, Upper Canadians returned a majority of reformers to the Assembly. Apparently, enough Upper Canadians were put off by the family compact's bad behaviour that they opted to punish them at the polls. Yes, loyalty mattered, but many reformers were loyal. And besides, can you not just let the man take his seat in the Assembly already? This put the then Governor of Upper Canada, John Colborne, in a tight spot. Although he'd been an efficient administrator, he was none too friendly with the more radical reformers. The British opted to send out someone new, someone they thought, mistakenly it turned out, had good reform credentials. Now, Colborne isn't going anywhere fast, so keep him in mind. Yes, he stepped down as governor, but even before he left the continent, the British sent a dispatch naming him commander of the armed forces in British North America. The Governor-General in Lower Canada normally would have held this position, but Gosford was a civilian, and so, with the unrest in the colonies, the Brits decided to have Colborne stick around. You see, Colborne was a rather special figure. Like many governors in this era, he'd seen duty in the British military during the Napoleonic Wars. But Colborne hadn't just seen out his duty. He'd excelled beyond almost anyone else. He rose through the ranks not by purchasing his way, but on merit. And in the dramatic final battle at Waterloo, when the British and Allied forces faced down Napoleon, Colborne was in charge of part of what was called the Light Brigade on the British right. You could make a reasonable case that Colborne himself significantly helped to bring down Napoleon. In the midst of the battle, Colborne saw an opportunity to attack the flank of Napoleon's famed Imperial Guard and, acting without orders, ordered his troop to sweep down on Napoleon's forces at a crucial moment in the battle. The French Imperial Guard crumpled under the onslaught. It was this foray, some said, that led to the eventual collapse of the entire French army. So, in Colborne, the Canadas had a brilliant military commander with an unparalleled pedigree. He wasn't going anywhere, and we'll see him again. But for the moment, in early 1836, Colborne was out as governor in Upper Canada, and in came a man with absolutely no political experience whatsoever, Sir Francis Bond Head. What can you say about Sir Francis? Although he too had seen service at Waterloo, he really came to fame as a travel writer, amusing tales of his treks galloping across the Pampas in South America. He was knighted for, of all things, demonstrating the military usefulness of the lasso. Yeah, you know, cowboys and cattle ranchers. The lasso. Back in England, after his travels, he was named Assistant Poor Law Commissioner for Kent in 1834, and it seems that this was the work that drew him to the attention of the Whig ministry when they were searching around for a good man with reforming instincts to send as governor to Upper Canada. In reality, Head was no reformer, but the ministry did not seem to know this. In fact, Head had so little political experience at all that he seems never to have even voted before. But there he was, in early 1836, arriving in the cold Upper Canadian capital, formerly known as York and only recently renamed Toronto. He was, 
as one contemporary put it, a damned odd fellow, and Upper Canadians were about to learn why. Governor Head actually started off doing exactly what was expected of him, conciliating. Reformers controlled a majority of the assembly and yet the former Governor Colborne's executive had still been controlled by Tories. So, Head invited two reformers to sit on the executive. The question was, which ones? He didn't want the radical Mackenzie or anyone associated with him, but there were other more moderate reformers in the colony and it was to these that Head turned. He invited Robert Baldwin and John Rolfe to sit on the executive. John Rolfe was more than a little educated. Rolfe had studied both law and medicine at Cambridge and, refusing to choose between them, worked at times both as a physician and a lawyer in Upper Canada. He was essentially every mother's dream son. He had turned to politics in the 1820s and quickly became a leading spokesperson for reform, especially around the alien question, that issue about the political rights of American-born Upper Canadians that we talked about last day. Even though he was himself English-born, he had taken to heart the cause of American-born Upper Canadians. But in 1836, he'd actually stepped back from politics, and this might have been why he seemed like a good choice to head. The other man, Robert Baldwin, was in the midst of grief. Baldwin was the son of William Warren Baldwin, a leading figure in Upper Canadian society and politics, and both Baldwins were known as utterly respectable reformers. The Baldwins, father and son, main cause was the call for responsible government. That is, a government in which the executive was controlled by and answerable to the assembly. This was one of the many reform causes, but for the Baldwins, it was the major issue. But when Head came to him, Baldwin had other things in his mind. Only one month earlier, his wife, Eliza, had died from long drawn out complications of giving birth via cesarean section. And to say that Baldwin loved his wife would be like calling water wet. Baldwin was torn up with grief. He lived that year in something of a haze. To his dying day, he carried in his pocket a note explaining his bizarre and romantic dying wishes. These were that when he died, he should be buried alongside his wife and their coffins chained together. What's more, he instructed that an incision should be made on his own abdomen, matching the cesarean incision that had marred Eliza's body. Yeah, that's love. And Eliza had died only one month before Governor Head approached him to sit on the executive. Still, duty called, and although Baldwin had some reservations, he eventually agreed. But he needn't have worried about the time commitment. He wouldn't be there long. From the outset, the two reformers weren't happy with the role Governor Head wanted them to play on the executive. Baldwin and Rolfe believed in responsible government and felt that the governor ought to seek the advice of, and what's more, act on the advice of an executive that was supported by a majority from the assembly. But they agreed to take seats on an executive where they were only two out of six members. They were sworn into office on February 20th, 1836. Yet even before they began, the reformers started a debate via letters with Head about whether he had to consult with them and on what issues. Head felt that when he wanted the advice of his executive, he would consult them. For Rolfe and Baldwin, this was too much. They insisted, quite originally, that Upper Canada already had responsible government and that Head already needed to consult them. If he didn't, he 
he was going against the much revered constitution of 1791. This was a kind of magical thinking. There was nothing in the constitution which actually said this, but it was certainly very much what the reformers wished were true. Head refused to go along with it and said so. And so there it was, a standoff. The only question was which side, if either, would budge. Now, it wasn't going to be Head. In the end, he forced all six councillors on the executive to resign. Head seemed to have worried that if only the two reformers resigned, the debate would look even worse. So he insisted that all members step down if they would not serve under the terms that he agreed to. As a matter of principle, the entire executive resigned, even those who were supporters of the family compact. This did nothing to win head friends in the reform-dominated assembly. Remember, reform held a majority of seats in the assembly now. The assembly reacted indignantly, criticizing head for acting against the received wisdom of what they said the constitution said. They also refused to vote supply for the government. That is, they stopped funding the government. Remember, this was the tactic that the assembly was then using in Lower Canada to put Gosford's feet to the fire. There were 7,000 pounds of unpaid expenses to cover and the assembly said, no way, we aren't paying them. And then, Head, stinging from the insult, pushed things to the brink. He prorogued Parliament and then later dissolved it altogether. This wasn't going to be solved in the legislature. If this current assembly wouldn't do what he wanted, he would show them a thing or two. He would take his cause to the people. With the assembly dissolved, he called for a new election. But this was going to be an election unlike any other. The lieutenant governor was supposed to be above politics. He was, after all, the representative of the crown and the imperial government. According to the ideal of the balanced constitution, the crown's role was to represent the state in which all sides, all loyal perspectives, could find a home. Yes, governors might be active in politics, but they had to do so decorously and always with an eye to making friends and seeing to the broader picture. Head was having none of it. Head portrayed the reformers as disloyal radicals who had betrayed the constitution. They were Republican agitators who would soon have Upper Canada in American hands if all other loyal Canadians didn't come together and support Head and the real supporters of the Constitution. So Upper Canadians went into an election in the summer of 1836 in which the governor essentially led a political party made up of those he defined as loyal to the governor and the Constitution. The reformers were taken aback. This wasn't how governors were supposed to act. What were they supposed to do? On the one hand, reformers professed their own loyalty. But still, this didn't mean they supported the governor. So on the other hand, they campaigned on the same kinds of issues that reformers have been talking about for several years now, criticizing the abuses of the family compact and other matters. But the trick was, on the issue of the constitution, Head was right. Rolf and Baldwin had offered a, shall we say, innovative interpretation about the need of a governor to consult them. They were just plain wrong, and that made it easy for the Tories to criticize them and to doubt their loyalty. Upper Canadians flocked to Head's banner of loyalty and the Constitution. The mainline churches, Anglican, Catholic, Presbyterian, came on side, frightened by the secular and disrespectful tone of the Reformers. Even the Methodists divided, with the prominent British Methodists coming on side. Upper Canada had been inundated with new immigrants through the 1820s and 1830s, mostly from Britain and especially Ireland. These immigrants flocked to the Loyalist cause 
and against the allegedly American agitators. And so too did the Orange Order, of course, and they did not shy away from adopting their rough tactics, breaking up reform meetings and threatening opponents at the polls. When the results came in at the height of the summer, Head felt completely vindicated. The Tories had routed reform in the election across the colony. The reformers complained about corruption and argued that the election had been stolen. And it certainly seems that there was some truth to this, but not enough to account for the completeness of the Loyalist victory. Prominent reformers, including William Lyon Mackenzie, were driven from office. Robert Baldwin, still forlorn over the loss of Eliza, hadn't even stuck around for the election. He sailed for England earlier in the spring, on a personal voyage of his own across the seas and alone with his grief. He'll be back. But in the meantime, by the end of the summer of 1836, reform had been beaten back and Head and the Tories were triumphant. Yet Head's actions hadn't just affected Upper Canada. Back in the winter when he had only just arrived, he opted to publish the instructions sent from London that were meant to guide how Head in Upper Canada and the Governor-in-Chief Gosford in Lower Canada were to govern. It was a goodwill gesture to show Upper Canadians and especially reformers that he was on a goodwill mission of conciliation. But the instructions contained a bombshell for politics in Lower Canada, or at least some would interpret it that way. William Lyon Mackenzie had seen it and passed it along to Patriot friends in Lower Canada. in Lower Canada, remember, Lord Gosford was enjoying the success of his own, though in his case this was his attempt to mollify moderate patriots and win them away from Papineau. When Head published the British instructions, Gosford's job got a whole lot more difficult. That's because the British instructions showed that serious constitutional reform, like, you know, changing that dreaded legislative council, was not on the table. Remember, Gosford had been appointed to lead a commission of inquiry looking into those grievances. Everyone awaited his report. The 92 resolutions hung in the air like the blade of a guillotine waiting to fall. When the news of Gosford's instructions arrived in Lower Canada, the Patriot had a hint of what their answer would be, and it wasn't the answer they wanted. There was to be no real reform, or certainly no elective legislative council. This pulled out the rug from under Gosford. The Lower Canadian Assembly immediately changed its tune. Although it had been considering being more reasonable on funding the government, voting to pay the arrears it owed to cover the costs of administration, the money had been withholding for the last three years, once they read the leaked instructions, the Assembly decided not to do that. Instead, the Assembly reiterated its commitment to the 92 resolutions and demanded that until these were dealt with, nothing else would happen. Gosford resolutely, if now a little half-heartedly, completed the commission of which he headed. The final report was sent to Britain in the autumn of 1836, concluding that an elective legislative assembly would not be possible and that to make this change and to give in to all the Patriot demands would effectively create a French Republic in America. The Commission suggested other ways of covering the expenses that were continuing to mount to cover the cost of government in the colony, which the Assembly controlled and refused to pay. Back in London, over the winter of 1836 and into 1837, the government stewed. 
the man who took the lead was Lord John Russell. This was the Lord John Russell who had led the way on the Great Reform Bill of 1832. He was a reformer, but he could not see his way around solving the crisis in the Canadas. In the person of Sir Francis Bond Head in Upper Canada, he had a maverick governor who had effectively abandoned conciliation. And in Lower Canada, he had Lord Gosford, who kept trying and failing at conciliation, not helped by Head's actions either. But decide, Lord Russell must, and so he did. In England, the government published its official response to the 92 resolutions in early March. A month later, in early April, the ship bringing the British news arrived at Quebec. And when it arrived, like a late winter squall blowing in off the ocean, it would blast into the politics of the colony like nothing before. The Patriot had their 92 resolutions. Lord John Russell was more succinct. He had 10. And as far as the Patriot were concerned, Russell's 10 resolutions could essentially be shortened down to just one word. No. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that episodes will automatically update each week. Next week, things really start to heat up over the summer of 1837. The news of the Russell Resolution spreads through the Canadas. To put it mildly, the Patriot didn't take it well. They decided to take action. Peaceful action at first, but with a plan borrowed from the Americans. That other group of disgruntled colonists who, several decades earlier, had laid out a path to slowly and steadily move your way from resolutions to rebellion. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Jessica Clement, with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.